Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Fizzle Show. I'm your host, Corbett Barr, and this is our podcast about earning a living independently doing something you love. And today we're joined by none other than Sharon Tewksbury-Bloom, who has been a Fizzle member for a long time. I've gotten to watch her progress as a member of Fizzle and also on these weekly coaching calls that we do called Fizzle Friday every week. Sharon is an organizational development consultant and founder of Do Good, Be Good. And we'll unpack all of what that means because Sharon's business is a little unique compared to other Fizzle members and maybe a little bit unique compared to what we featured on the Fizzle show before. So with all that, Sharon, thank you so much for being here. I have literally listened to every single Fizzle episode that was ever (laughs) produced. So it's a little surreal to actually be on this side of the mic. (laughs) All 370 something of them. (laughs) Yeah, that was one of the first things I did when I joined Fizzle was go back and listen to all the ones that I had missed. I love it. And you are one of the people who, uh, whenever we take a break or go on a hiatus, you're always asking, when's the next Fizzle Show episode coming out? So I appreciate that. (laughs) A little bit of a junkie. Yeah. Well, welcome to the show. And to begin with, I guess, for people who have no idea what I just said, organizational development consultant, how would you explain what your business is today? I know I do get a lot of confusion. A lot of people think that I'm more like Jen, who's an organizing consultant or (laughs) helps people with organizing, but it's not like that at all. I work mostly with bureaucratic institutions who want to improve their systems, their people issues. So I actually did study this. I went to graduate school for an organizational development and knowledge management degree. And which definitely got a lot of confused looks, sort of like going for an MBA, but specifically on how to run the people and operations side of just keeping things really efficient, really sustainable. So as I'm trying to explain it, I think you're seeing that it's a pretty broad field Yep, and it can be used to actually explain anything from helping people with training and development to strategic planning, to facilitating conflict resolution within teams. So if it sounds like I'm not quite sure all of what that means, I'm still not always sure what all of that means. (laughs) Well, and so when you went to grad school for this, what was your expectation of what you would be doing in your career and, and what do most people end up doing? Yeah, it's sort of interesting. Actually, when I was in high school, I remember sitting with a guidance counselor who was trying to help me figure out what career I wanted. And I said, I don't think I know the name of it yet, but I want to help people do what they do better. And I know that could cover a lot of stuff. But then when I was right out of undergraduate, I had an undergraduate history degree. And in my very first workplace, I watched this woman who went up to the board and facilitated a meeting where she was using sticky notes and she was helping people brainstorm and then helping people bring those ideas together and make decisions and doing it all as a facilitator. And I was mesmerized. I was like, I don't know what that job is, but I want that job. And so I went up to her afterwards and said, you know, what do you call this thing? And she was like, oh, this is organizational development and you need a graduate degree and hey, we should have coffee. And so I actually did. I got to know her and decided to go to grad school because of that conversation. And years later, I even ended up working for her and subcontracting with her. So Nice. And was it something about the working with a small group of people, helping them solve a problem in a specific period of time that was really attractive? Yeah, I think my dad is an engineer. Mm -hmm. And when I was growing up, my parents always thought I would be an engineer. 
And so I see it sort of like people and idea engineering. You're helping people solve problems, but the problems we like to say in OD, that's a short organizational development is called OD. The problems are what we call wicked problems. So they're problems that don't have a technical solution. They're problems that are complex because they deal with people and they deal yeah. with systems that are chaotic and, you know, change, trying to get organizations to make big changes. And that doesn't involve just knowing what change you want to make. That involves how do you actually get everyone on board? How do you actually implement a change process? Things like that. This sounds to me very reminiscent of work that I did as a management consultant. Did people from your program go on to be management consultants, a lot of them? Yeah, and that's actually something I loved about my program was it was a big mix. So OD shows up in corporate, shows up in government, shows up in nonprofits, and it shows up in different forms. Some people go into HR, some people are management consultants, some people actually work in IT and help people with big change processes when they're moving over to enterprise software systems and things like that. Is it unusual for people in that field to become entrepreneurs or individual business owners? No, I would say maybe a tenth of my cohort in graduate school went on to be independent consultants. And what does your business look like now for people listening? Are you just running meetings all day or are there other things involved? I do like meetings. (laughs) I do run a lot of meetings. I'm on year four of my business and... I would say how it looks now is also a lot different than it looked in January before the pandemic started. At the beginning of 2020, I was really moving into doing almost exclusively OD facilitation work. I was leading retreats for organizations. I was organizing team building. I was writing blog posts about how to run more efficient meetings, all kinds of stuff that really did have a lot to do with meetings. I was running a lot of meetings. But then after the pandemic, that in-person meeting work just immediately stopped. And my entire calendar for the rest of the year, which I had actually had a good start to the year, like I had stuff on the calendar for several months, but it all went away. It all dried up right away. Yeah. And some of it was just on kind of indefinite hold, but I had to do something. And so I actually went back to my roots into what I had done in my last job, which was to do the training and development side of OD. So helping people with webinars and workshops. And because I already had a lot of experience as a speaker and had been doing webinars for like, I don't know, seven years, I was able to quickly pivot and just focus on that side of what I do, which I had worked really hard to try to get away from and do less of. But I was grateful when the time came that I did have that skill set to fall back on. It's interesting thinking about the pandemic and how it has impacted some and not others. For me personally, really, my life hasn't changed much. And that's only because what I do happens to be very compatible with the lifestyle that we're all living now. But other people, I have a lot of friends who are speakers. Some of them rely on speaking fees for a good portion of the revenue as small business owners. And that was gone immediately. And a lot of people were left either with a really tragic year or they were able to quickly adapt and change. And It's interesting for you as an organizational development consultant, thinking about how you help organizations change, and then here you were presented with needing to change dramatically yourself. Yeah. In our world, um, in fact, my number one motto that I was taught in graduate school is 
embrace the ambiguity. And so my director of grad school was always trying to tell us that. He was saying, embrace the ambiguity, embrace the ambiguity. And I actually grew up as a kind of type A person. I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area. I love to make my lists and my plans. And I love to know that I had the five steps to go from point A to point B. And I did not embrace the ambiguity. And when he kept saying that, I was like, can you stop Please, like, Please. <laughs> like, I don't know that I even believe you that this is something I need to learn. And then finally, by the time I was leaving grad school, my husband or my future husband, we were together at the time, he was so deeply unhappy with where we were living that we decided to embrace the ambiguity. <laughs> and we actually quit our jobs and sold everything that we owned and ended up going on a year-long road trip to just explore the country and our lives and what we wanted to do next. And I think back on that a lot in this entrepreneurial journey too, because although in graduate school, I learned the importance of embracing change and how you help organizations do that. I think it was really that step I took right after graduate school of going on this year-long road trip that actually day in, day out, I learned the process of being okay with not knowing what's next. And, you know, I could feel that that physical change in my own demeanor and my ability to be okay with not knowing. <laughs> Even though you recognize this about entrepreneurship and about yourself and the potential conflict between the two, right? Because you here you are growing up as a, a type A, wanting everything to be sort of identified and categorized and so on. You not only are, are joining a career, a profession that deals with that ambiguity, but you also are throwing yourself into a world of ambiguity, being an entrepreneur, never knowing what's coming next and having to somehow move forward without perfect information. Somehow having to move forward, even though you might feel paralyzed at first with worry or fear or, or whatever, how has this impacted you? And I know I'm asking some leading questions because I, I've had the benefit <laughs> of watching your development over the past several years, talking with you at least a couple of times a month and sort of seeing this. And I know that like most entrepreneurs, you've had to really grapple with some of these mental games that you end up playing with yourself. Yeah. And thank you to Fizzle for helping me <laughs> work through those as I go. I wanted to say that, you know, part of what came to mind when you were asking me that is the fact that I definitely never, ever, ever thought that I was going to start a business. My roots are that I am a fourth generation government employee. <laughs> <laughs> yep. You know, <laughs> I didn't have this vision. I, I really get annoyed on these business podcasts when people talk about, well, I heard one where they're like, you know, I was an entrepreneur from the time I was in kindergarten. Like if I had an extra snack in my bag, it was for sale, like all that stuff. I'm like, no, I was not that at all. Like I didn't think I had an entrepreneurial bone in my body. And then, you know, my career before starting my business was mostly working in government on government programs, but all of those programs were actually grant funded programs. And so that's something that was interesting is people talk about all of the risks and uncertainty that you take on when you start a business. But if you've ever worked on a grant-funded <laughs> program, if your position has been dependent on grant funding, you go through every single year not knowing if you're still going to have a job. 
you go through, you know, huge heartache and huge level of stress and uncertainty without knowing about the future of the work that you do. And you don't derive any of the benefit of it. I mean, you don't get any positive outcome other than continuing to have a job and getting to do your work if you actually succeed. And likely earning a meager salary. It's like yeah. you work so hard, you know, this applies to people in the sciences as well. You work so hard to get funding for your projects so that you can make $50,000 a year or something and sometimes go without that salary because you're in between projects. And you have the added complication of your customer is different from the person that's providing the funding sometimes. And so you have, you know, these conflicting priorities raising money versus doing the work. It's not easy. Yeah. And in my last job, you know, talking about that difference between the customer to the person making the decisions about the money, I had had my greatest results year ever with the program. On all the measures we were measured on, I had the greatest outcomes ever. And then the next year we were cut by 54% in our funding because somebody else was making the decisions and the decisions had more to do with politics than with the grant outcomes. And it was very, I mean, I went through a full-on identity crisis. I was crying every night. I mean, it was like very, very stressful because that was the work I'd always wanted to do. It was super meaningful to me. And then the rug was pulled out from under me on that. And so at that time, so my last year or so in my job, this is sort of my origin story for starting my business was that, you know, I had this extremely stressful event. I felt that everything was beyond my control. I actually made it through that. I succeeded at writing new grants. We actually ended up with a $1.2 million grant and we ended up with a budget higher than we had ever had in the history of the program. And yet I was still dealing with a salary cut <laughs> and didn't see any financial benefit or greater job stability. So I thought back to this person who had looked at me one time and she owned her own business and she said, you seem like an entrepreneur. Why aren't you an entrepreneur? Like, why aren't you out there starting a business? And I didn't even like this person. <laughs> like this was, this was someone I had to deal with because of work things. And But I knew she was a successful business person. And I thought, okay, that's interesting. That's interesting that this person who is running their own business successfully sees something in me that is an entrepreneur. And so the combination of being completely overwhelmed by this crisis in the program that I was working in, and then having that little seed planted by this other successful entrepreneur, I thought, well, why not? <laughs> I was already in a place of complete uncertainty where my day job seemed like it was highly unlikely to continue. So it allowed me to take that big leap and just start trying out a side hustle to see if it could become a business. I'm sure that, you know, even though you're able to justify the decision to become an entrepreneur because yes, like you have a lack of stability that you're tired of, you know, your salary is meager and someone has told you that you seem to have the qualities, but that doesn't still make becoming an entrepreneur easy or making that leap easy. Was there some transition period where you were working and being an entrepreneur or did you just take the plunge with both feet? Yeah. And I think the transition period is part of what made it, if not easy, definitely very doable. Because of those huge grant cuts, I voluntarily, well, voluntarily slashed compared to really bad options, decided to reduce my hours down to the minimum I could do at my day job without losing insurance. So mm -hmm. I had a 30 hour a week work week, which was great because it allowed me, you know, 10 or more hours a week easily to play with a 
business idea. And then I actually went back to that woman that I mentioned who inspired me to go into OD in the first place. And I asked her if she had anything I could do that I could help her and I could work with her. And so I was able to get mentorship from her and just take on basically subcontract work. And that was huge. I ended up getting subcontract work from her. And then I also met up with another person who was in the field who also had subcontract work. And that's actually advice that I pass on a lot is I didn't have to build a website and decide what my business was going to be called and incorporate and do all these things because I just started as a freelance subcontractor just to kind of decide if that work was even the work I wanted to do or if I liked doing things independently. You know, I was able to kind of test the waters in a really low risk way. And then I quickly discovered that I loved the work and I loved having that freedom of making up my own schedule and deciding which projects to take on. And so then I kind of spent the next few months as my job was still there, taking it seriously, learning about business, joining Fizzle, doing all the things that it would take to figure out if I could make a go of it. And then even once I did all that, I mean, even once I quit my job, I still gave myself a nine month runway where luckily, you know, I had had a job for the previous five years and I'm a really good saver. So, and I'm in a privileged position with family that would support me if things went really, really wrong. So I gave myself nine months to just make the business work before I would take any money out of it. I love that basically your first action as a business owner was to start working on contract. You got paid right away. You were doing work right away. And you went to the most likely source of work, which is a thriving business that is already running, that likely has overflow work. So many people that get into entrepreneurship go through the motions for a long time and they start by playing business before they're actually earning any revenue or doing any work. And, you know, that involves setting up the website, like you said, incorporating your business, all of this kind of stuff. And you can do that for years and and never earn revenue. So it's so smart to just cut to the chase. But you brought something up that we've talked about that you, you mentioned earlier before we started recording, and that is that you've always felt a little bit like a fish out of water when it comes to fizzle and the sort of typical online business. And this is why I wanted to do this interview because you have a business that's quite a bit different. And and I know that there are a lot of other businesses out there like yours, but I think it's easy on podcasts like ours to get the impression that everybody runs a blog and sells online courses or something. But there are a lot of people out there that are helping all kinds of organizations. And in some cases, you know, it's easier, not easier, but it's perfectly reasonable to make an income by having three clients or 10 clients instead of a thousand clients paying you a small amount of money. And sometimes it's nicer. So when it comes to Fizzle and the work that you've done online, I know that you've had a podcast. I know that you've done speaking, all that kind of stuff. But maybe talk about how you've been able to keep the faith when it comes to building your online business, even though there are so many examples and resources out there that don't fit exactly. Say one reason why I stick with Fizzle and why I was attracted to it in the first place is that 
because I never thought I would be a business owner, I had a lot of preconceived notions about what being a business owner meant. And I was worried about losing that meaningful work piece. And I was worried about losing that piece where I was really being of service to others. Mm -hmm. And that's something that comes through so strongly with Fizzle is the importance of you know, really trying to do something that matters, even the write a blog that matters course and fizzle, you know, that just resonated so strongly with me. It's like, I never wanted to lose the fact that I wanted to genuinely help people and keep my values at the front. And that's what I've found camaraderie around in Fizzle is all of these people who are doing so many different things and such different kinds of businesses, but we all seem to share that desire to do something that actually matters and to try to genuinely help people and not just get online and scam a bunch of people (laughs) and get rich quick. So that's been helpful in terms of kind of keeping the faith with the online business. I think that I really value the idea that... I am building an asset. I really try to bring long-term thinking to my business that I don't always know like what writing blog posts right now. I mean, I've been writing blog posts off and on for three years. I think I still only maybe have five people reading them (laughs) and I've never put a genuine effort into promoting it, but I still feel like it's a good practice because I think that I'm building things little bit by little bit. And all of that is going to be relevant at some point, whether the actual content is relevant or whether just learning how to sit down and write day in and day out is going to be really relevant when I decide what it is, is the impact I need to have and what I want to write for other people. So I think I have a couple of different directions I want to go with this. But one is that I've stuck with Fizzle And I've tried some other things because I feel like there's a lot that can be learned from what I think is called analogous experiences. Mm -hmm. And I look for those insights everywhere. I learn something every time I'm on Fizzle Friday from someone who has a totally different business than I do. But the way that they think through the challenges that they're having, I can really learn a lot from that. I can reflect on it and, and get a lot of insight. You know, you talked about knowing people who are speakers and how much their businesses were affected by this. Well, I joined the National Speakers Association for two years and I went to their annual conference and I spoke at their annual conference. And then ultimately I left that association, but I learned a tremendous amount because it was an analogous experience. It was sort of adjacent to what I was doing. And there were just huge, huge, huge insights there to be gained. So I think that that's one thing that I've benefited from is not keeping my lane of inspiration too narrow. Like I don't just listen to business podcasts. I listen to business podcasts and storytelling podcasts and science podcasts. And I'm always getting inspiration from different places. And Fizzle is just sort of the one place that brings it all together for me to be able to reflect on that with other people who I know share those values. One of the underrated things about creating content, I think, is the fact that in a given afternoon, if you weren't writing or creating content, you would have a million different thoughts. And, you know, you tend to just kind of your mind wanders. And on each of those thoughts, you might spend five minutes or something. But if you sit down to crystallize all of your thinking around an idea, and then to synthesize that with other influences, you have to spend sometimes hours on that. And you really force yourself to get clear on how you feel about something. And so even if that writing isn't read by a lot of people, it's just a really useful mental exercise for yourself. 
Yeah, and I've found that with my podcast. I've had a podcast for three years. And as everybody talks about in Fizzle, if you're new to podcasting, you suddenly quickly realize just how much work it is to produce a podcast. And so it's really hard to have that consistency and keep a podcast going. You know, I've had to directly address that multiple times of, is this worth it? Do I want to keep doing this kind of content? But for me, even though the podcast doesn't directly lead to leads for my business, I get so much insight and a chance to synthesize my ideas and a chance to connect with people who share the same kind of interesting thought processes that I do and give me just new ways to make connections in my thoughts and in my business that it's been extremely valuable and I've decided to keep it going even though the value isn't something that I can measure in dollars. And that's interesting because we hear all the time from people who are wondering how you make time to create content and how you justify it, especially, you know, when there are a million things that we could be doing as business owners. And a lot of times it feels like directly getting clients or directly fulfilling work is what we should be focused on. So it's interesting to hear how you, someone who doesn't necessarily find that you get clients directly from your content, but you never know. And I think we've talked about this before. You write blog posts, maybe they don't bring people in, but once you have brought someone in through other sales processes, meetings, and so on, they might find your content and then dive deeper into who you are, what you stand for, what your business is all about, and might come to trust you more than they would if you didn't have that content out there. Well, and it's interesting because even though I don't necessarily get leads through the podcast, I do find it makes me more interesting to clients. You know, like, oh, you have a podcast too. That's so cool. You know, they like that about me. The other thing I was going to mention about the benefit of creating content and finding the time for it is I think that recently I've been reflecting on how that is part of what is so different about me in year one of business versus me in year four of business. Mm. In year one... I was very concerned about learning and figuring out how to run a business. And I was taking courses. I was reading books. I was trying to find the solution that somebody else had for how do I do this. And so I was taking in a lot of information. And then even when I was doing training, I was often just regurgitating great ideas from other people. It's like, have you heard about Simon Sinek? Yeah, 10 million other people have too, you know? Whereas finally in year four, it's like, oh, people actually would like to hear what my take is on this. And I'm spending almost all of my time figuring out and communicating what is my take on this? What is my unique contribution to this part of the field or this part of the conversation? So I probably had to go through that in year one. And I see it a lot like with new fizzlers who are just in that stage where they're just learning, learning, learning and taking it all in. But I hope that everybody recognizes that's okay. But you do have to pivot at some point to saying, okay, I've learned enough to develop my own take on how I'm approaching this. And it's almost as if that first year or two where you are mimicking, regurgitating, just sort of taking things in and spitting them back out to feel how it feels to have someone else's words that are smart coming out of your mouth. It's almost like those are training wheels that you have to use before you can learn how to ride a bike. Yeah, people will pay you to do that. So it's very addictive too, because you're even some people go through that their entire business. They 
sign on to be an affiliate of something else or they sign on to, you know, oh, I'm going to learn the strengths finder method and that's all I'm going to do is I'm just going to teach strengths finder. So they never get to that piece of developing their own unique contribution to the field. And it's it's scary because you are kind of going out there with a blank slate and saying, my ideas matter as well. I have a voice. I have something to contribute. And that can be extremely scary. Something else uh, that I've thought about regarding your business is you mentioned analogous experiences or learning from other people in other fields and then bringing that back to your own field. The people that you work with typically lately are nonprofits or non-governmental organizations, right? And governments. In my recollection of working with governments, especially, maybe nonprofits to some degree, it depends on, on which one, but they tend to be a little behind the current trends. And do you find that paying attention to sort of the cutting edge of what people are doing with content, with online businesses, with, you know, all the podcasts that you listen to, and then bringing them that back is that useful to you? You mentioned people say sometimes, oh, it's so cool that you have a podcast. You're able to sort of take some of these interesting things that they're just not exposed to yet, or they haven't quite caught up to yet. Does that feel like useful to you? Yeah. I do feel like I'm in that interpreter or translator role sometimes of let me sift through and understand the new technology and the new techniques and then figure out what's going to be relevant to my clients who Mm -hmm. are probably not up on that yet. But I also, you know, my great love and my original study was history. So I'm really a believer in understanding history and that not all that's new and shiny is necessarily the best just because it's new and shiny. So I think that that's actually a value that I bring to my clients because they don't have time to sort through, well, should we be using Trello or Asana or, you know, is none of it going to pass our firewall anyway, so we don't need to bother with it. So I'm actually often in the position of finding that way to merge new tech and really old school techniques. A good example recently is that I have been blowing people's minds lately by using a flip chart and smelly markers on Zoom webinars. Mm. (laughs) And so I'll be, you know, teaching them like, okay, I know you all have to do webinars now and you're learning Zoom for the first time and we're going to try to get to the point where you can use breakout rooms. But also good news, flip charts still exist. And if you bring yours home from your office, you get to still use a flip chart and you don't have to learn how to use all these fancy tools. You don't need Canva. You don't need, you know, Mural or any of these fancy tools. Like, trust me, for the next six months, just use your flip chart. And I've been shocked. I had literally multiple, this is not even just a single situation. Like I've had multiple clients who have messaged me afterwards to say, your use of flip charts blew my mind. (laughs) Like, please tell me all your secrets. Where do you get these flip charts from? (laughs) What brand do you use? Like all this stuff. It was so funny. I was like, just the normal stuff, actually. Just the same things that have been used for decades. (laughs) Yeah. The smelly markers are for your own benefit, though, because there's no Zoom doesn't have smell of vision as far as I know. Yeah. So I did with one special group. I actually gave them gift packages I delivered them to all of the people who would be at the meeting. So they were all joining from home or from their private office. And I dropped off. (laughs) This was basically bribery. I gave them each a smelly marker, some colored sticky notes, a chocolate chip cookie. (laughs) That's awesome. um, And some branded swag. A little care package. Yeah. 
I remember as a kid, this is a total side conversation. At some point, I think that it was like 7-Eleven or a, some convenience store chain partnered with a TV show or a movie that was coming out. And instead of doing, you know, they used to do the 3D glasses and it would be like a big deal. They did a smell-o-vision thing where you got this little, I don't know, packet of tabs that you would open and, and it would release a smell and, and it would tell you during the movie like when to open each one. It was a total gimmick, but as a 12-year-old, it, it worked. Well, time. that's actually something we're pushing a lot with trying to make virtual meetings more engaging is the idea of trying to engage other senses, you know, and that you're losing the fact that this is a tangible human experience now that everything's being done through a screen. And so whether it's giving people a gift package or whether it's even the flip charts, because the flip charts, part of what people like about it, I said, it's a little bit of theater. You know, it's like a real object is moving through space and time. You know, a sticky note is being stuck onto a piece of paper and sometimes it falls off. People love it when it falls off because it tells <laughs> them that authenticity piece that everyone's talking about of like, oh my gosh, that's real life right now. So yeah, there's this weird piece that I'm finding I can give that reassuring voice to some of my clients, many of whom are also older. There's a lot of people in their 50s and above, not that 50 is old, but <laughs> people who are not digital natives who are in government leadership positions who are trying to figure this all out very quickly. And so part of what I find myself in my role doing is saying, don't worry, you actually already have almost all of the skills and experience and knowledge you need. And some of the things that you're not thinking about, like storytelling, making a deep connection with people on the phone, remembering details about people in your group and being able to recognize them individually. It's like that's going to have a way bigger impact than learning how to use a poll correctly in Zoom. This, I think, segues nicely into talking about your latest project because you've gotten to a point in your entrepreneurial journey where you're starting to recognize your own skills, voice, abilities, and you're starting to like look for new slash old ways to dazzle people and, and to offer things. And then it, pandemic is thrown into this and it's kind of accelerated that in a lot of ways. And also in the life of any freelancer, any consultant, I think that you start to wonder, is there a way to scale this business beyond just charging more? And that's always a struggle. But tell us about your latest project, because I know that it's kind of wrapped all those things together. Yeah. And this is something I, you know, I've wanted to figure out how to scale, how to have a digital product for a long time, but I've struggled with where that came into play. But I'm always trying to listen to my audience or my clients and hear what they're struggling with so that I can see if there's anything I have that might help them. And what I was hearing over the summer is that a lot of the people I was working with were AmeriCorps programs and they were trying to make this this move to virtual orientations and digital training and digital facilitation. And, you know, I know because I was in their shoes, I was an AmeriCorps program manager that everything hits you at once. Grant deadlines are due. You're trying to finish recruitment. You're trying to get everyone started. So it wasn't even just that they didn't know how to do it, but sometimes it was that they didn't have the time to move everything over to the right format. Like many of them had done video calls by summer, even if they only learned how to do them in the spring. Many of them already had a lot of the materials because they'd been doing in-person orientation for forever, but they just needed that extra step to just put it all in line and get it all figured out in time for the deadline that they had. So basically, after I got a couple of calls from clients asking for webinars where I would train 
the programs how to do this, I sat back and I thought, well, that's not scalable. It's like, yes, I'm doing webinars. Yes, I'm sure the webinars will help them, but I can't help everybody who needs to be helped. And although they could use the webinar, what they really need is someone to just do it for them. So that's when I started trying to get creative with like, is there another format for this? And my clients have been telling me about a site that they were already using called Basecamp. And so because of my background in grad school studying knowledge management, that's actually all about building collaborative technology sites like SharePoint. And so I already had this skill set from almost a decade prior of how to set up collaborative learning tools and sites. And so it just kind of was this perfect moment where I could bring in the content that I had already created for the webinar, the blog posts I had already written about holding effective meetings, the knowledge I had from graduate school. It was like all of these things that had spent 10 years developing just all related to this one problem that my clients were having. The challenge was they were all on a deadline. <laughs> well, by the time I realized just how much this could all come together, I was like, I think I have three weeks, like three weeks to get this together and launch it. And then I talked to some clients and they said, actually, we need it in two weeks. I was like, oh my gosh, is it worth it to drop everything and try to do this right now? This is one of those like big unknowns as an entrepreneur. You think there's an opportunity but you know it's going to take a lot of time. And what if nobody buys this thing at the end? Yeah. And that's the great thing about webinars is they've already purchased it. The way I do it, it doesn't matter how many people even show up. I get paid by the webinar. So it was outside of what I normally do. And it was a big risk. And I also didn't know how to price it either because it was so different from everything I had done. I definitely brought that to the physical. Like, what do I do? How do I price this thing? And so I priced it cheaper than I would normally price a webinar. And those people who had reached out who gave me that validation that this was a good idea because they said, we need it in two weeks. You know, they were like, yes. Now, when can we have it? I was able to say, actually, if it's okay with you, I'd love to bring you on as my first beta users and I'll give it to you for free, but I need you to give me feedback and it's not going to be done when you get it. Like I'm going to have to start building it now and add to it after you've already had to do your orientation. So that's how I handled that as my first excited customers. I actually made beta users and got some really great feedback from them that kind of gave me that encouragement to keep going. And then I set the whole thing up and actually had a colleague who gave me his email list to be able to email everybody who might be a potential customer, which again was a chance to learn all these things that I had learned for the last four years through Fizzle about online marketing and automated funnels and CRM systems and all this infrastructure that I had in place that I had never really used to its full extent and then was able to launch it. And when I launched, my goal was to sell 10. If I sold 10, I knew that it would have been worth my time, basically. It would have covered my costs and covered my time for the month. And then my bigger goal my crazy goal, my like, I don't think this is realistic, was 25. And? So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm feeding you your lines here. Yeah, go on. <laughs> and how many did you end up selling, Sharon? Well, I ended up selling 26. And I had one customer who bought 10 of them just for that one customer. So yeah, it, it, it exceeded my expectations. And it was just remarkable. I remember because I'm so used to working with government and I'm so used to doing client work, I'm used to this extremely excruciatingly long sales cycle where I might be 
in a contracting process for like months and then it might be months until I do the work and then it might be another month until I get paid. And so I'm usually on this really long sales cycle and this product, because it was a product and it was already done, I was able to set it up with credit card and people could purchase online instantly. And so suddenly money is coming into my bank account instantly. And it was only what, maybe a month prior to that, that I had had to give myself a personal loan to cover my cash flow because of these long sales cycles with all this client work that got put off because of the pandemic. So yeah, it was definitely a roller coaster of like having gone through this, oh my gosh, I know I'm going to make it through this pandemic down period, but it's going to be painful. And let's hope my husband doesn't get mad that I'm taking money out of our personal account to then like five weeks later being like, I'm buying dinner. (laughs) (laughs) Having your biggest month ever. So you also, I think, got to finally experience what it's like to build something once and sell it to multiple clients or to deliver it to multiple clients without additional work versus, you know, that long sales cycle before would happen. And the reward for the end of that was then having the work to do ahead of you, which is crazy. So looking forward, do you feel like if your business is scaled up, let's say five or 10 years from now, do you think that there's a place for digital products? Do you feel like you would bring on additional consultants to deliver the work that you're delivering yourself now? Like what's your path forward to scaling? Yeah. And this is part of why I loved one of your recent podcast episodes where you talked about all the different kinds of products that people can have and the different Mm -hmm. things because it kept those gears turning in my head. And one thing I learned when I was part of the Speakers Association is that the greatest risk to your business is if you do put all your eggs in one basket. You know, if you're completely dependent on client work or completely dependent on a product, I think for me, that's too much risk and it's not dynamic enough. So that's what I'm continuing to strive to do is have that good balance, have multiple streams of revenue, have multiple ways of helping clients. And I mean, I'm already started on a design for another online product that I plan to launch in December or January, but I'm also, you know, right back into client work and taking on new clients. So I think the client work helps you so much to keep relevant and keep yourself aware of what your client needs. And I learn every single time I meet with a client online product where you create something and you do it once and you get revenue is pretty seductive. So definitely going to keep doing that. You've gotten a taste. So in parting, for people listening to this who may feel like round pegs in a world of square holes and maybe don't see exactly the kind of business that they want to run, or they feel like everyone is like a fitness model on Instagram and my business is not going to look anything like that. So where do I get help, advice? And I'm not fishing for you to bring up anything about fizzle necessarily. I'm thinking more about how do you persevere and how do you give yourself enough time to build the confidence to make a successful business. I always have to keep reminding myself to keep taking action and always going back to, you know, I write my three daily essentials for the day. You know, I'm a planner by nature. I love working with people on strategic planning. So for me, it's always trying to bring myself back to, okay, but what is it that you can actually do today that is going to move things forward in your business and to continue to take action. And the action is what keeps motivating me. So that's why I said I love working with the clients because the clients then further spur my creativity and it keeps me going. Because every time I talk to the clients, I'm like, 
oh, now I have five more ideas of what I could create. So I think if anyone's not sure kind of where they fit, first of all, that's okay. I think if you are, let's say you are a fitness expert, it's great to know that you're in a field in which there's a lot of other fitness experts because that probably means that there's a need. Don't let go of that chance to learn from other fields and learn from other dynamics. You know, I think an exercise that's really fun to do is to say, you know, what can I, as let's say a fitness expert, learn from a professional speaker or learn from a facilitator? And so that's one way that no matter what influences you're consuming, if it's fizzle or if you're part of another mastermind group or something, always asking like, how can I take this and translate it into my world rather than just take it and repeat it exactly the same way. Because it's probably not going to work if you just take it and try to fit that round peg into that square hole. At least shave the edges off a little bit before you do that. Yeah. Sharon, this has been awesome. There have been a lot of great learnings from your story throughout this. For people listening to this, they can find more about Sharon over at SharonSpeaks.com. Her business is called Do Good, Be Good. And Sharon would love to help you with strategic planning or leading, facilitating meetings, anything involving organizational development. Check it out. But also, if you're just curious to see inside Sharon's business, uh, head over to SharonSpeaks.com. Sharon, thank you so much for being on today. Absolutely. It was a pleasure. As always, you can find the show notes for this episode over at FizzleShow.co. With that, as always, I'm your host, Corbett Barr. And until next time, thanks for listening to The Fizzle Show. Fizzle Show.